0: Good morning, church. Good morning. Wow, what a uh, joy and an honor to be with you this morning. I was, I was uh, so humbled when I got uh, the text from Pastor Rob. And you guys, I don't need to tell you how, how blessed you are. Uh, over the years, Rob has not only been a good friend, but uh, being, being uh, a pastor, uh, a younger pastor than him, watching from afar at his long-term faithfulness to Christ, to the church, to his wife and family, uh, integrity and uh, like that is hard to find these days, and so you guys are blessed and uh, yeah, thank you guys for having me. Uh, Pastor, uh, Pastor Rob did catch us on the end of our vacation we 've had an enjoy- enjoyable time here i 'm from Southern California, born and raised, and now we are in St. Joseph, Missouri, just north of Kansas City. So I uh, just want to say this definitively: no one in here ever has the right to complain about your weather again. Okay, it's so hot, you, you don't know yet if it's hot, uh, but it's good to be back in, in, uh, in this state and uh, to be with you guys this morning. We are in Psalm 98, as Pastor Rob mentioned, Psalm chapter 98, you guys are in a series through the Psalms, he asked me to cover one of those, and this morning we are going to be looking at a message entitled, The Reasons We Sing, if you are taking notes, you might want to jot that down. And uh, if you would pray with me, and we'll, ju- we'll jump right in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather in your name with your people and enjoy the relationship of peace and, and forgiveness that we have with you through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. We honor you today in our worship, and we pray that as your word moves through us and in us, the Holy Spirit would quicken it. And open our ears to hear and our hearts to understand what the Spirit is speaking today. And so, Lord, would you challenge, encourage, exhort us according to your will, and we welcome you in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the psalm reads this, and I'll read through the entire psalm, and we'll jump in. Psalm 98, David writes, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy, holy arm have gained Him the victory. The Lord has made known His salvation. His righteousness has revealed in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His mercy and His faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth in song, rejoice, and sing praises. Sing to the Lord with the harp, with the harp in the sound of a psalm, with trumpets in the sound of a horn. Shout joyfully before the Lord, the King. Let the sea roar in all of its fullness, and the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. With righteousness he shall judge the world and the peoples with equity. Amen? Amen. Psalm 95, 96, and 98, in a succession of psalms, all start off with the same exhortation and the same command to the people of God. And it can be summed up in one word. The word is sing. Sing to the Lord. In fact, the psalms are a reference or a collection of songs written by various authors, the majority of them by King David himself, who, no shock to us, would write songs because he was a musician. He was kind of the artist type, apparently, and he was a songwriter. And most importantly, he was a worshiper of God, whether he was by himself or with, with, whether he was in the congregation of the people of Israel. He was constantly praising and declaring songs to the Lord. In fact, in Psalm 98, in four separate references, we see references to singing, to musical instruments, to melody and lyric, to the clapping of hands, and to song. And this should not surprise us, again, because of how King David was wired as a musician. But not only was this unique to King David, singing is a preoccupation of God's people as a historical precedent. In fact, what David was doing in writing Psalm 98 and many of the other psalms was exactly what Moses And the children of Israel did when they crossed the Red Sea and made it safely to the other end, unharmed by the Egyptian army. It's the exact same thing that Hannah did when God answered her prayer and heard her cry to bear a son. It was the same thing that Nehemiah and the children of Israel did when they miraculously and supernaturally completed the walls of Jerusalem against all odds. It's what Mary did right after she found out that she would bear the Messiah, the Son of God, within her womb. It's the same thing that Jesus did with his disciples as they went from the Last Supper to the Mount of Olives before he went to the cross. It's what Paul and Silas did when they were in a prison at midnight, surrounded by prisoners. Can anyone guess what all these people have in common? What did they do? They sang. They sang songs of praise to God. And Psalm 98 is a response of worship, and that's really what praise and worship is. It's a response to God. When you see Him, I'll spare you and not sing it for you this morning. But here's my point for all the amazing work that God has done, for who He is, for how He saved us, many times there is no better way to express our love, our gratitude what he is worthy of, and what he's deserving of, than to sing him a song of praise and worship. Now, before we get into a a short exposition of the psalm, I want to take a, a bit of a rabbit trail intro into this topic of praise in the scripture. I believe that singing and music is one of the highest forms of human communication, I think, I think music and singing brings our intellect and our emotions together in one place that impacts us in ways that other things can't. Let me ask a question by, by way of survey. Anyone in here, absolutely, you despise, you hate, you plug your ears and run away from any form of music. Raise your hand. Okay. Just one. Just one. Okay. The guitar player or the drummer. Okay. That's great. <laughs> uh, no, we, we, were, we love music. Now, we all like different kinds of music, we have different preferences, we have different styles, there are different songs that mean certain things to us because of moments they mark in our life. When I was a young kid, we used to go to the Colorado River, we lived in Chino, and we would drive to Lake Havasu every summer for vacation, and I have one memory that I can't get out of my mind. I was probably nine or ten years old, and we would leave at oh, dark, 30 in the morning, And as we were driving there, I have this memory of waking up in the car and looking out the window and seeing the desert and the sun coming over, you know, the sun rising above the desert mountains. And all I heard from the front seat of my dad's suburban was, Here comes the sun, do do do, here comes the sun. I'd say, It's all right. A bunch of heathens. Why do you know that song? It's a Christian song, right? Here comes the son of God. It's all right. It's, there's a lot of truth in that song. <laughs> but doesn't, it, doesn't music, it like connects us to moments. It, it opens up wells of emotion and meaning in our soul that we didn't even realize were there. And why is this unique to humans? Well, I believe this unique connection to music and to song and to melody and to lyric is directly because we are created in the image of God. And do you know that the Bible directly tells us that music originated in heaven? Music started there. In fact, there's a reference you don't want to miss because you can easily skip over it. In Job chapter 38, God is speaking to Job and he's speaking about the creation of the foundations of the earth. And what was going on while he was speaking, let there be light. And speaking those days of creation into being. In Job chapter 38, God says... To what were its foundations fashion fastened that 's the earth, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together, and the sons of God shouted for joy. Now, the the term "sons of God" is not to be confused with the Son of God, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, but the sons of God and the morning stars are, are a reference to angels. You could maybe call them the first rock stars ever. Uh, and, and the morning stars what we 're told here is try to imagine it God is is speaking the, the the universe and the atoms and the cells and the molecules all into their perfect order, and as he 's doing it, there is this heavenly melody of music and notes and song and lyric that are flowing over the creation. Oh how, how oh, to be there. <laughs> to hear what the words and the praises as the angels observing God's creative power were declaring his majesty, declaring his power, declaring his glory, declaring his goodness. As he breathes into the nostrils of Adam and brings life to man, there are songs in heaven that are springing forth just because of who God is and what he's doing. What a powerful thought. However, there's another biblical connection to angels in music, that's not all that encouraging. In Ezekiel chapter 28, we're told about the creation of an angel. We know him as Lucifer. The cherub that covers, his title was, the wisest of all of God's created beings. And we're told in chapter 28, verse 13 of Ezekiel, that he was created with, quote, Timbrels and pipes. Now, who knows what timbrels and pipes are? They're musical instruments. We're, t- we're told that within his own nature was a music, was melody. We, we get the, the sense that Satan, pre-fallen, as one of God's created angels, almost controlled the flow of the melodies of heaven. I personally believe that that was what probably one of the main things that contributed to his pride is that he saw the worship and honor and praise that was going to God and being the, the one who was sort of navigating that, he wanted it for himself. And when he fell, we know this, just look at the musical industry today and tell me that Satan hasn't kept music and pride tied at the hip. <laughs> because he wants to take God's good creation and rob us of what it was truly designed for, which was to honor, glorify our God. Now, the next thing I want to share, and this is my opinion. Raise your hand if you heard me say this is my opinion. Okay, I just, I want to be careful whenever I say that because this is my observation on how I read scripture. When Satan rebelled and was cast out of heaven, I personally believe that heaven and the angels stopped singing. Now, they didn't stop praising God because God is always worthy of constant praise. But I believe music in heaven stopped when Satan fell. I can't find one other passage in the Old Testament or New Testament, except here in Job, that has the angels and singing together in one passage. You might say, well, wait, Josh, what about the shepherds on the night Jesus was born? The angels appeared in the heaven and they all started singing Read the passage carefully. It says the angels appeared, and they said, the word in the Greek is legos. it means to speak or to proclaim, saying, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth and goodwill towards men with whom his favor rests. Three times in Revelation, the angels are declaring praise to God, but it's all with the same word, lagos, saying, saying, speaking, declaring, proclaiming. You know, Josh, that's, real, that's kind of interesting. But why does it matter? Because in Revelation chapter 5, we see singing in heaven. And I want you to listen where it's coming from. Now, when the lamb had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp, that's a musical instrument, and bowls full of incense, which, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. You guys, this is incredible. Let me ask you a question you all know the answer to. Who has been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb? out of every tribe, nation, and tongue has been made priests and kings unto their God and who will reign for him, with him forever on earth. Who is it? It's us. It's the church of Jesus Christ. And what they sing, they sang a new song. That first song of creation that the angels sing, sang was one song and then Satan fell and music stopped and then God entrusted to his redeemed people. The ability to sing a new song that enters into the halls of heaven and honors Jesus. That tells me that our singing is a privilege. It is a powerful tool, a powerful weapon in the hands of the saints. Music has been given to the church to use in our worship to God and the redemption that he has purchased us with his blood. And this is why the Bible everywhere commands us to bring to him the sacrifice of praise. Scripture is, impl- is, is, is amazing when we see the form of worship and praise from the people of God. Now, you guys know, God, does God need our worship to exist? No, he is outside. He does not dwell in, in temples made with human hands. He is holy. He is all apart, He separate. He is altogether a self-contained. He doesn't need anything from us, but he desires our songs because when we give him our songs and our worship, it implies that we are giving him our adoration, our hearts, our love, our gratitude, our thanks. And that means when we engage in our times of praise and worship to God, the Bible makes it clear that we are to engage our entire being, heart, soul, mind, body, strength in the worship of God did an interesting study through the Old Testament, and I noticed a connection between praise and physical actions associated with praise. It's really interesting. For instance, Psalm 95, verse 6 says, Oh, come, let us worship and what? Bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. When that was written, it wasn't like some figurative, like, oh, I'm bowing to God in my heart. No. He was on his knees because he was so humbled by the amazing presence of a powerful God who would think about him and, and, and consider him that he just had to bow the knee in surrender and submission to God. Psalm 47.1 says, Clap your hands, O you peoples. Shout to God with a voice of triumph. The joy and the victory we feel in Christ ought to be expressed through the clapping of our hands, through the lifting of our voices. Psalm 63 verse 4 declares, Thus I will bless you while I live. Then what? I will lift up my hands in your name. When, you, when you're standing there worshiping, you're lifting up your hands. It's not because you're just trying to do the wave or you like the music. It's because there's a God that you recognize. He, he deserves it. And I'm trying to physically express to him my love and my surrender. Engaging ourselves with what's in our heart. We need to engage ourselves completely in worship. And I, I, I don't say this is any word of con- condemn, condemnation, uh, but I'm challenged by it. Because the first 20 minutes of, of church, when we come together, gather together as God's people on Sunday morning, that is not the buffer time for the sermon. That is not the, well, I stayed up late watching my favorite show, so we'll just get there for the message time. That is not... Um, well, I can kind of sneak in the back, you know, and talk to my friends out there until he starts preaching time. If we truly believe that the Bible tells us God inhabits the praises of his people, and when the congregation of God's people come and start to declare his praise and sing his name out loud and the presence of God comes, we need that, especially in a world that is so confused and so broken and so scared. We need the times and points of refuge To invite God's presence and to, to declare, why? Because it shifts our hearts. It shifts our perspective and it causes us to be prepared to meet with God and be refueled, so to speak, for the week ahead of us. I've often found regarding worship that God matches intensity with intensity. Now, I'm not suggesting that somehow we can force God to do something that he doesn't want to do by some magic formula. But check out the principle in Scripture. What does God say? If you seek me, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart. So there's a movement towards God, and then there's a movement from God back towards us in response. Draw near to God, and he will draw near near to you. There's a movement of faith that takes place and sometimes worship does require faith. Well, I don't feel like singing. I'm having a bad day. Things are not going. The drums are too loud. It's all my favorite. I, I don't like those songs. Blah, 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 blah. You know what I found? More people, find, more people in the church today find reason to complain about worship rather than find reason to participate in it. And the reason why is because we don't realize how easily we get disconnected from our life in God. And what we need to do is find our response again. To the Lord, to believe that He habits the praises of His people. And yes, if you're wondering, singing to God is not optional, it is a command of Scripture. At least six times in the Old Testament, we're told, as we are here in Psalm 98, to sing to the Lord a new song. Four times in the New Testament, Paul commands us to sing in the Spirit, to sing to God, to sing to one another to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and to make melody with grace in our hearts towards the Lord. It's painfully clear in the Bible that Christians are to be a praising people. And here, you're thinking, are we in Psalm 98? Yes. And here are, the, here are some points that we're going to look at. As we scroll through Psalm 98, we see five reasons why David sang why he called God's people to sing. So if you're taking notes, jot them down, and we'll move, move, move quickly through them. Number one, we praise God, we sing to God, because God is always doing new things. Can you say that with me? God is always doing new things. Verse one again tells us, oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. Every day I walk with the Lord, I am reminded that we follow a God who is always doing something new. You recognize that, right? God is always doing something new. As I read the scripture, it doesn't take long to discover that we have a God who's always making old things new, always doing a new work pouring new wine into new wineskins, making new creations out of fallen people. In Christ, we're told we have a new covenant that the old things have passed away and all things have become new. The Bible speaks to, to the fact that God will continue doing new things until the end of time. Ultimately, he will establish a new kingdom. He will create a new heavens and a new earth. He will bring down a new Jerusalem. And my mind can't fathom what heaven's going to be like, but I do believe this. No mind has comprehended what God has prepared for those who love him, but I think heaven will be always new all the time. Don't you like new things? I do. I always like getting rid of the old things and getting something new. But heaven's the only place where everything will be new and you'll always be satisfied by it every day. It's hard to even fathom that. Why do I bring all this stuff up about God doing new things? Because the the author recognizes... That because God does new things, he deserves new songs. Or maybe I can put it like this there is no possible way to run out of reasons to praise God. It's not possible. He's always doing something worthy of a response of praise and worship. New songs is not the occupation of professional worship leaders and songwriters. New songs comes from a heart that is connected to the new things that God is doing in your life. You know you can sing an old song in a new way? Why? Because you're in a place where you're walking by faith. And you're being filled with the Spirit. And you're on some new adventure with the Lord. And He's revealing something new in His Word. And He's calling you to some new work by faith. And He's calling you to some new adventure Right, And when you are living life with God in that way, there will always be something to sing about. But when you're not, worship turns into a rut, rote, boring, religious experience. You see, in a recent survey done of evangelical, Bible-believing Christians, eight out of ten people surveyed said they don't experience a personal connection with God at church. That is a heartbreaking statistic to me. That we believe that God inhabits the praises of his people, that the word is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, and the Holy Spirit is active and moving, and yet I come to church and I don't experience any connection with the living God. Author Joseph Garlington, in his book on worship, writes this, Many Christians and church congregations have abandoned the dynamic of true spirit-led praise and worship and the sacrifice of God of their lips to God. They have fallen into the rut and wrote worship of religion by the letter when God really wants them to worship in spirit and in truth. We ought to know better, but many of us don't act like that like it. And many people in the modern church today, I think, feel disconnected from worship. Not because the music's too loud, not because the song isn't the one they like, not because it's not their favorite worship leader, but because they become disconnected from their life in God. And what we need to ask is for a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit, for God to do new things in my life, and for me to repent if necessary and praise him because he is worthy. And so he sings because God is always doing something new. And so he therefore deserves a new song from our hearts. Number two, David sings because God is victorious. He sings because God is victorious. Look at the end of verse one. He says, his right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. Now there's no shortage of events that David could have been talking about when he wrote this. He could have been thinking about The children of Israel being delivered out of Egypt by God's mighty hand and his outstretched arm. Or the numerous victorious battles during the wilderness wanderings. Or how God delivered his people time and time again through the period of the judges from the hand of their enemies. Or how God even in his own life, as he went and fought Goliath, as he was dealing with things with the nation of Israel, showed up in a supernatural and divine way, And at the times he thought he was going to fail or fall, God showed up. And he says, God's mighty hand and his outstretched arm has gained him the victory. I could sum it up in one statement that we always need to remember. Christian, our history is never void of God's victory. Our history is never void of God's victory. This language, his right hand, his holy arm, they're images of God's strength in battle. That he always wins the battle that he fights. You know, whenever I think of that language, uh, the mighty hand of God, the outstretched arms of God, I can't help but think of Jesus on the cross. Where his arms were outstretched and his hands were nailed to the cross, and for the outsider looking in, what they saw was a victim a man who had lost his will to go on, a man who had been defeated finally by the Jews and the Romans and had nothing left. His enemies mocked him. His followers fled from him. Those who loved him mourned as though their hope was gone. But what we know because of three days later and Jesus conquering death forever is that was no victim on the cross. That was a conquering king who was a victor. A a king who is defeating Satan, death, and hell. A king who is dealing with the wrath of God for for us forever. He he, he has won the victory through his mighty hands and his outstretched arms. And, and, And I think of this, if God did not spare his own son for our sake. You know what it tells me? That there is no battle you'll face in life, that Jesus isn't willing to fight and win on your behalf. There is no battle you'll face in life that Jesus isn't willing to fight and to win on your behalf. Do you feel under the pressure and under the weight of a circumstance that is outside of your control? Are you afraid and the fear is creeping in because of the uncertainty that is in the world right now and the direction things are going? Are you fighting with a newfound discovery about your health or about a loved one? What battle do you find yourself under the weight of? And where else have you run? to try to find peace and joy and hope and encouragement that have just let you down and left you hanging. My friend, let me tell you something right now. Jesus is a a victor who will always be on your side, who is always for you and never against you. He might not do it your way. He might not do it in your time, but he can be trusted with your trial. And one day you and I will look back at our lives having followed Jesus at every difficulty, at every unanswered question, at every uncertain turn and point of life where we didn't know the future and what was going to happen, and we will look back at the hand of Jesus through it all and say, Jesus, you did everything right. You have done all things well. And he can be counted on because he has already gained the victory. And Christian, this is one of the main reasons, I believe, Satan and his demonic forces, which are very real, absolutely hate your worship. There is a warfare over your worship. Why? Because every time you sing about the victory of Jesus, every time you proclaim your praise that Jesus is my king, that I am in Christ, that he has won, it is a reminder to Satan that he has lost. It's a constant reminder to the enemy that Jesus has defeated him forever that he has no foothold in your life, that he has no stronghold in your life, and that you, are, you belong to the one who is the victorious king. And that within itself is good enough reason to sing. Amen? Amen? In fact, let's sing. Hallelujah. Praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah. Death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Amen. No, I'm not done yet, so sorry. Um, We'll move through these though quickly. Number three. The third reason he's saying is because God had revealed his salvation. Look at verse two with me. The Lord has made known his salvation... His righteousness he has revealed, note, in the sight of the nations. In other words, the beautiful thing about God's saving power is that God is not trying to hide his salvation from anyone. God is always inviting and making clear and known to every nation, every tribe, and every tongue his saving power. And it is amazing to me that part of the world seeing the salvation of God comes through our praise, that our praise is to be declared to the nations of God's mighty work. How many of you have heard the phrase, I worship to the audience of one? Anyone's heard that phrase before? And to some degree, that is true. God alone is the only object that deserves our worship, no other idols before him. But our singing is also to others. It's to each other, the Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 3 verse 16, that we are to teach and admonish one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. I led worship for about five years, a long time ago, and one of my favorite moments was where the voices of the congregation became louder than the voices of the stage, because there is no stage and audience in heaven. It's just one it's just one audience the redeemed of the Lord giving praise to his name and there is something powerful that happens when you hear the people next to you start to sing the truths of God with all their hearts and with their voices lifted high that teaches you that lifts you that exhorts you but notice not only that there is a song that takes place in judges chapter 5 i encourage you to read it on your own the whole chapter is a song the longest song in the bible written by Deborah and this general of Israel named Barak. Not Obama, the other one. <laughs> Barak and Deborah experienced God's incredible victory over Sisera and the Canaanite army, supernatural from heaven. I mean, God showed up. And what does she do? Her and Israel sing a song. They write a song as they're marching away from the battle with all the enemies in chains listening to them singing. And the verse verse one of that song, the first words in Judges 5 3 says this Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes. I, even I, will sing to the Lord, I will sing praise to the God of Israel. In other words, they didn't want to keep their praise to themselves. They wanted their praise to be heard by the nations. Why do I bring this up? One of my favorite stories in Acts chapter 16, in all the the entire Bible is when Paul and Silas were in prison. They had just cast out a demon from a girl. So in other words, they did something very good for a human being. And the society hated them for it. Sound familiar? (laughs) Christians doing good things and the society... Why? Because the spirit-filled Christian who's doing the work of God is always a threat to the power structure of the society that wants to be God. I digress. I won't go there. But here's what we learn. They get thrown in jail. And in Acts chapter 16, verse 25, we read this. At midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and what? Singing hymns to God. Well, who was listening? And the prisoners were listening to them. Christian, you don't know who's watching your worship. Here are Paul and Silas, they're in, we're told, the midnight hour. Figuratively, we could even say that. They were in their midnight hour. They were in prison without knowledge of what was going to happen the next day. And as they're in their darkest hour, their hardest moment, they could have been worrying about how they were going to get out. They could have been wondering about why they got in. But instead, they were worshiping the God who was in control of it all. And church, when you are in your darkest hour, At the end of your rope, in circumstances and situations that you can't control, perhaps under even persecution for doing something that follows Jesus, in that darkest hour, you can spend it worrying about how you're going to get out, you can spend it wondering about how you got in, or you could spend it worshiping the one who's in control. Why? Because worship invites the power of God into your darkest hour. Declaring his praise over the circumstance is the solution. Surrendering your anxiety and your struggle in prayer and in praise to God. And I love that the, the, that the prisoners were listening because they're sitting and they're going, We're probably going to die. We're in this horrible prison. We have no hope. And here are two people that aren't acting like us when everything around them is falling apart. And it became a witness to the power of God because we're told that as they were singing, the earth shook, the prison doors were open, all the chains fell off, the Philippian jailer who was going to kill himself got saved, his family got saved, and all because two guys refused to worry and wonder and they decided to worship. That's incredible to me. There are chains that fall off, there are prison doors that open when the praises of God move up and the presence of God comes down. Now, I realize that some of you don't like to sing publicly. Like Paul and Silas, you too have prison singing voices. Always behind a few bars and can't find the right key. I, it's okay. I don't have to be invited back. It's okay. But you know the saying well, and it probably was there for a reason. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. It is not about the quality of our voice. It is about the position of our heart that God cares about. And so we can bring the power of God by singing. And you don't have to, I mean, they're the two guys, they had no guitars, no sound systems, no video walls. Uh, they had two voices in the midst of a prison. And they call God's power down. And wherever you're at, singing is a good expression of surrender, of faith, of trust in the Lord. Number four, David sings because God is faithful to his people. David sings because God is faithful to his people. Look at verse three. He has remembered his mercy and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. When God saw Israel's trouble, history tells us to this present day that God has not forgotten his covenant of mercy. He remembers his faithfulness and he remembers his promise. And when you consider God's faithfulness in your own life, it should cause you to worship. If you ever doubt if God will or won't show up in his way, To deliver you, to provide for you, to give you peace that passes understanding. If you ever doubt it, all you need to do is go back and look back at all the moments you've marked where God has been faithful. Because it speaks to to the proof that God's never broken a promise, He's never failed His purposes. In fact, would you say this with me? I think it's a true statement. When it comes to God's faithfulness to His promises, he never forgets. Here we're told he remembered. This might not be for everyone, but I certainly have had moments in the recent periods of my life where I, I asked God, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten what, what you said? Have you forgotten our circumstances? Have you forgotten our situation? And his answer Has always been the same. It's spoken right here. God never forgets. In fact, when it comes to forgetfulness, there is only one party in the Bible that forgets, and it's not God, it's us. We forget His faithfulness, we forget His goodness, we forget His provision. And God is calling us to remember that He is faithful. In fact, the Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 2, verse 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. In other words, if God was to forget or be faithless or break a promise, it would go against his very nature. He is not capable of doing so. And so when we think about our songs and we sing, great is thy faithfulness, we remember his faithfulness. Finally, number five, we learn that David sang a song of worship and praise because God was coming again. Because God was coming again. Verse four continues, shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth, break forth in song, rejoice and sing praises, sing to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of a psalm, with trumpets and the sound of a horn. Shout joyfully before the Lord the King. Let the sea roar in all its fullness. And the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills be joyful together before the Lord. So here's an aside where he's now inviting people into the praise of God. He's saying, Get your musical instruments, start jamming, create some melody, sing, praise, clap your hands, all you people of God. And then he takes it one step further. He says, Oh, and all creation, the rivers clap your hands, mountains bow down. All creation is going to declare the praise of God. Remember what Jesus said when he rode into Jerusalem on that donkey? And the the Pharisees are saying, hey, shut the kids up. Don't let people praise you. And Jesus said, if they did not praise me, even the rocks would cry out. First rock concert ever. (laughs) Sorry. And in all seriousness, I don't know what that would have looked like, but Here, symbolically, you know, the Bible tells us, Paul tells us in the book of Romans, and check this out, all creation groans until now for the redemption of the sons of men. Why? Because when Adam fell into sin, guess who else? All creation got contaminated with sin. Everything's falling apart, even in its beauties, even in its most glorious moments. It's merely a shadow of what God designed it to be. And so here the author is saying, people of God, Praise the Lord. Creation of God. Praise the Lord. All the earth praise the Lord. Why what is prompting this song of creation? Verse 9. For he is coming to judge the earth. And he shall judge the world and the peoples with equity. Wow. God has not left the earth to its own demise. The Bible is clear that Jesus is coming back. And the people of God expect that. They look forward to the righteous judgment of Jesus coming into a world that is falling apart at the seams. The world apart from God, speaks of their social justice, they speak of their mercy, they speak of their good works, but all it really is without Jesus is humanity's attempt to be their own God, to bring their own heaven upon their own earth, and let me tell you something, they will never, ever succeed. Because they are sinful and fallen. What this world needs for peace is the Prince of Peace to come into their hearts and ultimately the world will see physical peace when he comes and reigns from Jerusalem on his throne on this earth. And the Bible says he will rule with a rod of iron that he will bring justice. And quite honestly, it's the justice that all people really long for. Jesus came once as a Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. The Bible tells us he's coming again as a lion of the tribe of Judah. The meek and mild Christ came to humble himself to the point of death, but Jesus will return a king again, a conquering king to bring justice and judgment upon all the unbelieving world and to invite those who by faith have trusted in him into his kingdom. And God's salvation has been revealed. He is coming again. And I, wanna, I want to close on this point of his return because we could talk a lot about it. It's a whole sermon series, of course. But by giving you an image that I hope causes a response of worship in your heart. If you would close your eyes, I want to read you a passage from Revelation 19 about our coming king. And I want you to try, if you can, To envision the words that are written. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. With justice he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty." On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That is our Jesus. That it is us returning with him to the world that he is going to make completely right and completely new. And this morning, as you think about that day, we believe that there is a day that could happen this day where Jesus will come rescue his bride, will come capture, rapture us up to the sky along with those who have died before that we might be with him forever. Our God is a God of salvation. And I want to say too, if you don't know where you stand with God, this God, the God who is a mighty king, yet a humble savior, the God who, who is coming in righteousness, but came to give you the opportunity to be forgiven of every sin, to be made right with your creator, to have the sure hope of heaven as your home by the work of Jesus Christ. You need to take a step of faith towards Christ today. You need to find yourself in the one who created you to be with him. And you can do that by taking a step of faith and receiving Christ to be the forgiveness, to be the sacrifice of yours for your sins, to be your God and your king. But for each of us, let us consider as we close in response that God deserves our worship because he's a God who's always doing new things. And for all the new things he does, he deserves a new song from our heart because he is a God who's claimed the ultimate victory, conquering death, Satan, and hell forever. And he gives us the victory in every battle we face in this world, against the flesh, and against the enemy. Because he has revealed his salvation, not only to us, but declaring that God's hope is available to the entire world. And because he has been faithful, and he will be faithful to the end of our lives. And finally, because he is coming again, and when he does, every eye shall see him. Every knee shall bow to him, and every tongue will confess his praise. I encourage you, let us not wait for heaven. Let us praise him now. Lord, we thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for your salvation that you have so freely given to us, undeserving, sinful people, that you have called us, redeemed us, cleansed us, filled us with the power of the Spirit, given us the hope of heaven given us all the reason to rejoice and to be glad and to be hopeful about our future because you are holding it and you are faithful and so lord may we respond now with our songs as imperfect as they might be with our voices as imperfect as they might be lord may our worship reflect that we see you truly for who you are and for what you've done we honor you and we love you today We pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.